Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. of January 2020. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. And indeed, um, if we're going to stand, we are going to stand in the power of the Spirit of the living God. We are going to stand as people who have um, been in the Word of God before we walk out into the world that He so loves. We can't stand as giants if we uh, think that is about us. And we can't walk as lions if we think that is about us and how we are going to approach things out of our own power or influence. Uh, The only way that we stand as giants and the only way that we walk as lions is if we do so um, in the spirit of the living Christ, if we do so in all humility, if we do so as a part of a greater fellowship um, of people whom God has called to represent the king and the kingdom in the world that he so loves. So, um, where in the word are you today? Again, we said yesterday that could be book, chapter, and verse. Where in the word are you today? I'm in Acts chapter 14. Um, but you could also answer the question of where in the word are you today uh, in a very different way. So, where in the word are you today the, as an understanding that Jesus Christ is the very word of God incarnate? So, we're talking here about abiding in Christ. We're talking about the one. Um, under whose yoke we have willingly submitted ourselves. Um, Where in the Word are you today? Where in Christ are you today? Abiding in Christ. Christ in you and you in Christ. Where in the Word are you today? Are you at the very heart of the Savior? Are you cultivating the mind of Christ on the matters of the day? Where are you in the Word today? Where in the Word are you today? All right, uh, first up this morning, I'm going to have a conversation with Mark Caleb Smith, you heard in the headlines at the top of the hour uh, that we fully expect the articles of impeachment to be moved from the House to the Senate. Um, and so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the way that we as voters in the country are, I'm going to use the word targeted here, um, how we are targeted by particular candidates, particular campaigns, and particular parties. Because I think we need to be alert to how it is that um, communication is tailored to, you know, speak to our itching ears and uh, scratch the places where we most itch. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We like to talk about things at the intersection of faith and politics. Welcome back, sir. Hey, how you doing, Carmen? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing just fine. The semester is getting started off and uh, everything's going well so far. 
All right, see, there's always the, the point in time when I'm tempted to rattle off the names of students I know at Cedarville and check in on them, but I will resist doing that this morning because, you know, that could go any direction, and maybe their parents don't want to hear their names uh, singled out in quite that way. So there you go. Um, prayers lifted up for every student, every professor, every person who is serving uh, on a campus right now across the country. This is a hard semester, particularly for freshmen. Uh, I am aware of that in terms of friends who have kids that age. So I just, uh, that's a group of people I am particularly prayerful um, about this time of year. Let's do this. Let's start with an impeachment update. We heard at the top of the hour in our little news briefing um, that the Senate is likely to commence the the trial. Tell us where we are in this process. Yeah, we're still waiting for the articles to be transmitted to the Senate. Um, Speaker Pelosi in the House decided to hang on to them for quite some time I think with the goal of exerting some pressure on the Senate and hoping to get some concessions over what the trial might look like or having new witnesses. But I honestly think that was probably a waste of time for her strategically. Um, The Senate really would be fine with having no trial at all if it could come down to that. And so I'm not sure she had much leverage, although I do think there is a possibility we will hear from a witness or two. So uh, it's going to be interesting moving forward, but it's still, I think, very, very unlikely we'll see them convict Donald Trump. Right. So this is one of those um, trials that we enter into, the outcome of which we feel like is already known. Yeah, I think so. And in some ways that's uh, discouraging because uh, we've had senators, many senators step forward and say, well, I'm going to vote to acquit. I'm going to vote to acquit. There's no no real issue here. And I think you'd always like to hear jurors, which is basically what they are, uh, try to remain unbiased and at least a little bit objective. But Obviously, they feel a lot of political pressure to support the president, even at this particular moment, because he's extremely popular within the Republican Party and the Republican politicians clearly are responding to that. So I think that one of the things we can point out, although we liken this to in some ways to a judicial process because um, it's the way that it helps us frame it and understand it, this would be one of the clear distinctions. When we talk about the Senate functioning Um, As a jury, it is not uh, in any way like a jury that is uh, vetted and selected because it's impartial um, and seated, you know, because it doesn't yet know anything. Um, That's just clearly not the case. I think that's a good differentiation to make. Are there other ways in which this process is very different, differentiated from the judicial process that many of us would be more familiar with from, you know, court TV? Well, usually we think of jurors as people who are, you know, we don't know who they are, at least initially. There's some effort to protect their identity, at least early on in the process. And sometimes there's even an effort to protect them physically in certain situations. Sometimes jurors are sequestered, you know, they're removed from public information so they don't get biased during a contentious trial. None of those things are true here. I mean, we know who the senators are. Uh, They're public figures. They feel political pressure. They feel public pressure in a way that juries certainly would never feel. Um, And these people are also acting not just based on the president that's sitting before them, they're acting based on the voters that they're going to encounter at the polls, whether it's in November, whether it's two years from now or four years from now. uh, Voters, when it comes to big, high-profile votes like this, they'll remember. And uh, the senators certainly know that. They're going to vote to some degree in their own self-interest in a way that I think most jurors would not. Right. All right. So let's pivot and let's talk about the way that we as voters out here in the uh, American populace are targeted um, by campaigns, because this is a good conversation for us to be aware of as we head into 2020. 
Um, I don't live in a state where there is a lot of television advertising already for candidates, but I know some people listening do. Um, Let's talk about the targeting of particular groups based on, um, well, I mean, you know, we would have historically called it pandering. Do we call it pandering anymore? Uh, Yeah, it's always pandering to some extent or another. I mean, you're trying to find uh, whatever that button is that you can push as a campaign to get support. I I think a lot of us, when we think of of the, the function of a campaign, we tend to think of it as being this idea to persuade the undecided voters or to look at the moderate voters or try to find voters that don't exist and sort of create voters almost. That's really not the way that campaigns function right now. I mean, what they're really trying to do is maximize the turnout that they have. They're trying to maximize their own supporters. And so they're looking for more and more pockets of people who are most likely to support them and make sure they can get those numbers as high as possible. They're not trying to persuade some mythical middle moderate kind of person. They're trying to find people who already are predisposed to like them, reach them and contact them multiple times, ensure they're going to vote and drive up turnout. That's really the best strategy that they've used, uh, not just right this year, but really over the last eight to 12 years. And so if I am, if I would self-describe as an evangelical Christian, although right. uh, I don't like when that is used to describe um, politics, I use right. it to describe, right, my affection for and allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and yes, that works itself out in my, in my life as a person who lives among other people, um, and therefore it's, it's political, right? I mean, that's sort of the most basic nature of politics. Um, but when I think of myself being targeted um, because of my religious faith and therefore approached politically in particular ways, I find that a little, um, mm, it's kind of puts a bad taste in my mouth. And so when I see groups like that, that are, that are statistically small, um, right. the Jewish people or the Amish um, right. kind of targeted because of their right. religious views by particular campaigns. You know, you know, I, I don't know. I don't really like that. Yeah, I can understand that. And I, I think I, I think you and I, you and I share that same uh, idea that we don't like thinking of our faith purely in political terms. And we don't like certainly people approaching us purely for political reasons. But even with groups as small as the Amish vote or uh, the Jewish vote, those numbers can matter, especially in swing states. I mean, there's a good chance that Pennsylvania might be a swing state this year. You do see a fairly sizable, or at least a fairly significant pocket of Amish voters there. There's a very good chance that Florida will be a swing state. There are over 600,000 Jews in Florida. And so what the campaigns can do now is they can micro-target these populations in pockets of a state that might matter you know, down to not just the county level or the precinct level, but down to the neighborhood level and the block level and say, okay, here's a block of people. We want to maximize turnout here. Let's target some resources there and see what we can turn out. Mm. Okay. So that's interesting. When we come back, um, could you and I have a conversation about something I recently read um, by Eric Metaxas uh, about Donald Trump and evangelical Christians? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. That's my tease, people. Um, Stick with us. Mark Caleb Smith and I are going to talk about um, what some very high profile evangelical Christians are saying, particularly about President Trump and uh, and Christians who may or may not have an affinity to vote for him this time around. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Continuing my conversation with Professor Mark Caleb Smith of Cedarville University, and he and I are now going to wade into um, waters that I think are conversational topics that you and I as Christians must be having today. Um, These are conversations that are being had in the editorial pages of the major newspapers across the country. Journalists are certainly weighing in, people who would be uh, both self-identified as evangelical leaders, but also identified as evangelical leaders because they have sizable followings of people across the country, um, are weighing in. And they are weighing in on um, very different sides of the question in terms of how Christians— uh, should approach the this election cycle. And so um, we have a very high-profile uh, radio talk show host named Eric Metaxas, um, who in the Wall Street Journal um, has an op-ed that basically says, you know, it's, well, it's, the, it's called The Christian Case for Donald Trump. Um, and then we have a number of other people who have written basically in response to that saying, um, I'm, that's not where, that's not how I understand the Christian faith. So, um, Mark, when we when we begin dissecting this, it seems to me as if the conversation really comes down to um, whether or not we can dissect belief from behavior when we are talking about the Christian faith. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and, and I think sometimes we we expect a core set of theological or doctrinal beliefs, like we certainly as evangelical Christians. Uh, hold to, we we expect those to translate directly into certain kinds of political activity. And the translation there sometimes just isn't so clean and it isn't so obvious. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I want to make sure people understand. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing over how we take something as complicated as our doctrinal positions and we translate that into a vote. We might reach different conclusions. We might look at parties differently. We might look at individual candidates differently. We might look at the times that we're in differently and reach a different conclusion. Uh, One of the things that I think we have to be careful of as we have these kind of debates and discussions is to make sure we treat each other well as we go about these discussions, even if they're public, because you and I both know the world is watching, the world is listening, and the world is examining how we treat each other as part of our witness and part of our testimony to how they're going to perceive us and how they're going to perceive Christ in the process. And to some degree, that's really the debate between these groups of people is how much of an impact should it have? You know, should, How much of an impact should this have when the world looks at us in a certain way? Should that be enough to dictate how we vote because we want, want to make sure the world perceives us correctly? Or should we think about the political impact on us ourselves? And clearly Metaxas would argue politics is so important, the stakes are so high that we need to vote in order to protect ourselves and to protect our interests. Other people would say it's just not worth it. You know, the cause of Christ isn't worth voting for certain kinds of people. And that's really the divide that we're looking at. So, um, you know, there's there's this temptation um, for me to lift up particular sentences and um, and ask you to help us maybe understand the conversation that's taking place here. When I have a person who would say something like this, um, in terms of their understanding of the Christian faith, um, it's not what one does that makes one a Christian, but faith in what Jesus has done. Now, at a theological level, I would absolutely agree with that. There is nothing that I can do to save myself. Everything that is necessary for my salvation was accomplished 
in, through, and by Jesus Christ. And uh, and I have no hope outside of him, none, not a shred. I bring nothing to that. However, I would say that once I am in Christ, my behavior matters because I then become a representative, a representative of him. Um, I am then an ambassador of the king and the kingdom. What I now do either reflects positively or negatively on the one whose name I now bear. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think you can really argue with that. Um, you know, even though our actions don't save us, and, you know, you and I clearly agree with that. I completely agree with how you described our salvation and the process of our salvation. Uh, at the same time, it's true that our behavior reflects the fruits of the Spirit. Our behavior should reflect Christ who is in us. And so we have to be really careful uh, when we engage in political activity that seems to contradict those fruits of the Spirit. And part of the confusion here, too, is how do you look at a difficult and complicated political figure like the president, and how do you categorize him, and how do you vote for him or not vote for him, and then how do you explain that to people? And there are many different ways you could go about explaining it. Uh, but I think one of the reasons that uh, Mr. Metaxas has drawn such criticism is he seems to defend the president for all of his decisions all the time. And he seems very unwilling to criticize the president, even in areas where most Christians would say, yeah, you know, that's the kind of behavior that we want to avoid in a political figure. He doesn't seem willing to even admit that. And I think that's really where uh, he's drawn the most criticism. This is clearly going to be um, a complex year to yeah. be a Christian, um, a public Christian, a Christian in conversation with my neighbors um, in terms of the politics. Any any thoughts as we enter the year just in terms of how we as Christians might approach the conversations that are coming our way? Well, I think one of the most important things we can do is to watch the attitude that we bring into these discussions. Uh, you know, you, I, I'm guessing you, and I can certainly say I have gotten into some interesting conversations with people over the last month or two months on these very topics. And people tend to get very defensive. Uh, people tend to attack one another. Uh, they tend to engage in all sorts of what I would say is ungodly behavior. And we need to be careful that we bring a proper attitude and a proper spirit into these conversations. You can disagree with your neighbor, but you can do that lovingly. You can do that truthfully. You can do it in a way that still represents Christ well. Uh, no one's saying you need to change your mind about politics necessarily, but I think we, we can certainly change the way that the way that we present ourselves to the world. Uh, because I agree with you. I indeed think that that's how they perceive us, and that's how they perceive Christ. It's how they're going to define our witness. And so look at your attitude. Be careful with your words. Uh, and I think if we do that, that'll go a long way. Because right now in our culture, it's so strident, it's so... Uh, polarized, that any little bit of grace that we can bring to these conversations, I think will make a difference. Hey, will you watch with me um, over the course of this year for, you know, some of those logical fallacies that um, always come up in these conversations, um, that are always a part of the uh, conversational cycle, um, and help us see those as we move through this year, that you and I would just be able to point out to people when some of those logical fallacies are being used? Because I think helping us see what's going on then you know helps us feel more confident in the conversations that we're uh, that we then turn to have. Yeah, I mean, no question about it. I mean, we need to think well. We need to try to think biblically. We need to try to think clearly. And we need to try to communicate that to others to the best of our ability. And then, of course, pray to God that He'll use those communications to His glory. So, yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, that sounds like a good path forward for us in our conversations um, in, in the coming weeks and months. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, we always appreciate your insight. Um, you have a very, very faithful approach um, and very measured approach. And I really appreciate that. Thanks, Carmen. It's always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. We'll be right back. So I have a listener, Jane, who has texted in 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 the middle of my conversation with Mark Caleb Smith. She texted in, uh, Better Angels is a very helpful resource on all of this. And yes, I would agree. Better Angels is a very helpful resource on all of this. We talked with representatives from Better Angels um, here on the program. Wow. Back in March, on March the 5th, we talked with them again on November the 20th. And you're saying to yourself, well, how might I be able to hear those conversations? Well, you go to um, the podcast page for the show. And so you go to MyFaithRadio.com, you go to the podcast page, and uh, and you search for Better Angels. Or since I've now told you that it is March the 5th, 2019, and November the 20th, 2019, you just go and uh, to those dates and, and grab those particular podcast conversations and listen to, to the conversations that we had with representatives from Better Angels um, on the topic of how do we talk with one another across party lines, across divisions, um, and how do we do so peaceably seeking to really build community and understanding versus just tear down the other person? So just an encouragement there. Also remember a conversation I had here with Bruce Ashford um, about some of those logical fallacies that are employed and how we can not only recognize them, but avoid using them ourselves. So there's some conversations that you might uh, go and reach back and grab from the podcast that we post at MyFaithRadio.com. I also post the podcast at ReconnectWithCarmen.com. Sometimes that uh, is a little easier to search in terms of a name or an organizational uh, uh, or an organizational name. So just know that as well that the podcasts are posted both at myfaithradio.com and at my ministry website reconnectwithcarmen.com. All right, next up I've got Seth Haynes, author of the book of Waking Up. We'll be right back. Everyone has those moments when they don't handle things well, and even the best parent loses it once in a while. But if losing your cool has become the new normal, maybe it's time to hit the pause button. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. When a parent provokes their children to the point of exasperation, it's like pouring gasoline on a smoldering fire. In fact, your angry outburst may leave scars on your teens for years to come. So here's the challenge to you today. The next time conflict occurs and you feel your blood begin to boil, take this time-tested advice. It comes straight from the wisdom of Scripture. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Parenting teens isn't for the faint of heart. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Seth Haynes. Uh, Seth is a guy who has not only experienced the grace of God, um, but he is one who then writes in such a way that we can sort of find ourselves and our own story, um, not only by reflecting on his, but then turning toward the Lord and saying, hey, help help me, um, help me walk in this path of redemption that Seth has also found. So we are going to talk with Seth Haynes today about his newest book, 
Uh, it is entitled The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love That Reorders a Life. It's really a follow-on to Seth's award-winning book called Coming Clean. And uh, Seth Haynes, welcome so much to Mornings with Carmen. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. You know, this is the first morning show that I've been on since the book release talking about waking up. So it seems super appropriate. So uh, give us some geography. Where are you waking up today? I am waking up in Fayetteville, Arkansas, the heart of the Ozarks, God's country. I'm, I'm sorry for those of, uh, of you who aren't. It's lovely here today. <laughs> So um, I'm waking up in uh, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. It's also lovely here. It may be less lovely where Paul Perot is. Paul Perot, where did you wake up today? Well, it's a little snowy this morning and about 30 and temperatures will fall today. So, you know, that's... Twin Cities. Twin Cities, yep. Twin Cities. Well, good morning to everybody across the country and around the world listening us listening to us today. And it could be that you're listening to this via podcast and you've been wide awake for several hours. And what we are actually not talking about is is uh, is just the physical going to bed every night and waking up every morning. What we are talking about is the sobering up kind of waking up. So, Seth, let's start with this. What's the problem from which we all need to sober up or wake up? Yeah, the um, you know, for me in my own personal life, there was a season where I was helplessly um, sort of addicted to, attached to the bottle, um, and that grew out of for me a very specific pain. I had a very sick child at the time, and and uh, we thought we were going to lose him uh, for a while, for a good long while, and in that season, I just decided I didn't want to feel anymore. Um, it was a reminder of the pain that I had as a child when I didn't find healing in my own life um, as a as a sort of helpless asthmatic. And so for me, there was this underlying pain um, just of, of the lack of feeling, sensing the presence of God in my life, particularly the healing presence of God. And so uh, I turned to the bottle to kind of numb that and to get rid of it. I walked away from that. Um, and that story is kind of chronicled in my first book, Coming Clean. But in the years since that book, as I've talked with others and, and spoken about, you know, sort of where people find themselves in life, I found that we're all really just addicted to something. I mean, so many of us have pain in our life and we uh, use things, the created things of the world to sort of numb that pain, whether it's, you know, shopping or drinking or pills or porn uh, or, you know, even reading a lot of books, you know, the, the best theology, whatever, whatever the thing may be. Um, so many of us use things to sort of numb uh, ourselves to the pain of the world. I'm glad that you um, that you lift up actually some positive things or seemingly positive things um, that some of us use as coping mechanisms or um, I mean, that might be the uh, that might be the positive spin on the language of addiction. Uh, the yeah. things that we the things that we rely on, um, and sometimes those can be things that are that sort of start out as positive. So, can you talk about pleasure? Because I think that one of the um, one of the things that I often hear people say is, "Well, I, I don't really necessarily want to give up um, the way that I'm living because what you're talking about is simply." you know, is simply going to be empty. It's going to be unsatisfying. There's going to be no pleasure in that. If I sober up, if I wake up, that I'm going to not have all of uh, what I imagine is the pleasure of being 
you know, frankly, half asleep walking through life as a zombie. But that's clearly not the full life Jesus came and died to give us. Yeah, that's right. I, I um, start this discussion, you know, a lot of times with the conversation about pleasure. You know, is it is pleasure good? Is it bad? Is it neutral? Um, when you're using pleasure to numb the pain, I would say, look, that's not the intention of pleasure. That's not why God gave us uh, pleasure. God gave us pleasure to draw us into, you know, the the sacramental reality of uh, relationship with Him. The fact that you know, he needs us to eat or else, you know, we die. He needs us to have sex or else, you know, the human race doesn't go on. He needs us to to do these things. And so he gives us pleasures uh, to show, hey, participating with me in the goodness of the world uh, is a good thing. It's a fun thing. It feels good, you know. Um, but, but what we do so often, and it doesn't matter what it is, if it's good or bad things. And and I talk about this a lot in the book, you know, a lot of these things, um, operate on the same neurochemical, uh, you know, principles, you know, you eat and you get a fat load of chemicals dumped into your brain. It feels good. Keep doing it. You know, you drink same thing. Um, you have sex, the same thing. And so I think what we so often do is we, uh, instead of using those those pleasures, those experience of pleasures and turning and saying, God, thank you for giving me a world full of pleasures uh, so that we can participate and know you better through pleasure, we elevate those things over God. We attach to those things instead of attaching to God. We treat those things as ends in and of themselves instead of then allowing them to turn us back to God to say, and you are the giver of all good things. We believe that we shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Thank you so much. And that's where things really get out of whack. And out of whack is um, uh, another word for um, distortion um, or disordered attachments um, and or addiction. And so... um, Maybe when we come back from the break, let's take a let's take a really brief break. Um, and maybe when we come back, you can you can talk with us about what it means to sober up and wake up from these the, not only the distorted view of of these things that really are genuinely pleasurable when they are in the right order and in the right measure and rightly directed toward God. Um, maybe you can help us understand what it means to sober up and wake up because I think that there uh, we almost need like a vision of what yeah. that looks like if we are half asleep and inebriated. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So I'm going to continue this conversation with Seth Haynes. The book is The Book of Waking Up. I actually do have some copies. If uh, if what we're talking about today um, sounds like it's just really something that you need right now, if you would just text the word book, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll bounce you back a link where you can... Um, where you can register uh, to to get one of these copies that we have in the studio today. So all you have to do is text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. I'm going to continue this conversation with Seth Haynes in just a moment. All right, Awaken My Soul might be a good part of the soundtrack for the book we're talking about today. The book is The Book of Waking Up. Seth Haynes is the author. You can find Seth at his website, SethHaynes.com. Facebook, Seth.Haynes.12. I don't know if that means you're the 12th person on Facebook with the name <laughs> Seth Haynes or because you are, you know, I don't know, 
mysteriously one of some group of 12. You can also find him on Instagram and Twitter at Seth Haynes. Again, the book of waking up. So um, where we left off is, you know, what does it mean to sober up or to wake up from this sort of anesthetized half sleep that I'm in? Yeah. Um, and it's a good, it's a good question. It's the right place to start. I think the first thing that we have to ask ourselves is what is the, the thing that we're attached to? What is that coping mechanism? So assume you know, that, that I know my depraved self well enough to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah. So if you know yourself well enough to know that question, then I think the next question is, um, how, how, what's the pain underlying that? So why do you use that thing? Is it loneliness? Is it, uh, you know, that you're, that there's just some scarcity in your life? Is there a, a pain point of abuse in your life? And, and to wake up, what it really means is to say, I'm misusing this thing, uh, to, to sort of salve the pain that's not what it was meant for. It was meant for pleasure to point me to God. And so, God, I'm going to invite you here to be with me, to sit with me in the pain. I'm going to put you above the created thing. Um, I'm going to maybe abstain for a season from that created thing, from alcohol, from uh, whatever the thing is, you know, shopping maybe. Uh, I'm going to abstain. I'm going to leave it alone. And for a time, I'm just going to sit with you and I'm going to bring my whole self to you. I'm going to bring my pain to you and I'm going to ask that you come uh, and be with me. And and then to the extent that I use any other thing in life, you know, again, food, uh, sex, booze uh, or alcohol, you know, wine, whatever, um, I'm going to do that only in ways that point me to your goodness, that allow me to love, serve, and reverence you. And, it, and it's really just the decision uh, to sit with God and allow him to tend to you as you learn to use all things as created for their intended purpose, to, to draw us to love, serve, and reverence God. So here's one of the things that, um, that emerged to me uh, in, in reading the book of Waking Up. There is... Um, there is a functional atheism that is exposed mm. when I am focused on or relying on or even unconsciously using um, anything in place of God's rightful place in my life uh, in every area. And so I'm, I'm functioning as if God is not when I am instead um, relying upon something, anything that's less than God. And I mean, I think that historically we might have called that idolatry. I think that's an awfully like people don't see themselves, you know, bowing down to uh, food set upon an altar um, or alcohol set upon an altar. Like idolatry, we tend to think of in our minds as, you know, some actual act of worship that looks like worship. And instead, I think that it's more like just this functional atheism where we're treating God as if he is not in, in, a, in the regular rhythm of our daily lives. Yeah, yeah, and that was certainly the case for me. Instead of bringing uh, the sickness of my child, the sickness of my history, um, to God and asking Him to show up, um, that pain was so great that I did turn to something else. I did turn to the bottle, and I think you're exactly right. It is a it is a functional atheism. It is a form of idolatry. It is bowing down to a sort of golden calf and saying, "Hey, be." Be our God, you created thing, the thing that we fashioned with our own hands, be our God. And it, and it really does um, underlie and show 
sort of what exactly what you said, like we don't trust God enough with our pain. We don't trust God enough with our human experience. And if you find yourself in that boat, um, it, it, you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to learn to sort of take that thing off the altar and and put God back in his rightful place. I mean, this is why we have therapists and pastors and priests and communities of people uh, that can walk beside us and say, hey, let me help you reorder your life. Let me help you reorder the things you're worshiping and let's get God back on the throne. Again, I'm talking with Seth Haynes. We're talking about the book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love that Reorders a Life. Um, one of the things you talk about is not only waking from, but waking to. Um, can you talk, uh, can you share with us a little bit about that? What does it mean to not only wake from, but to wake to? So we have to in a very real sense, wake up from the things that drag us down. You know, Christ says, wait, I mean, Peter, Paul says, wake up, O sleeper, and the light of Christ will, will shine upon you. And, and there is a very real sense in which we have to wake up and get out of our bed. And, you know, down here in the South, we talk a lot about the bed you made. You got to sleep in the bed you made. You know, I think a lot of times with addiction, the bed we make is uh, the thing. It's the alcohol. It's, it's the pills, the porn, again, whatever. Um, and I think there's a, a very real sense in which we have to wake up from that and get out of it. You know, see it for what it is and get away from it. Um, but then what are we waking to? Are you waking to the drudgery of life? Are you waking back into the pain? Well, yeah, maybe. Um, but hopefully in a true sense of waking up and in a true sense of letting the light of Christ shine on you, you're waking into the love of God, into the experience and the willingness to say, God, come meet, me where, come meet me where I am. Come be with me. Walk with me. Help me understand you more. Show me that I'm not alone and that you are here to show me your goodness in the land of the living. One of the images, Seth, that uh, kept coming to me as I, was, uh, as I was considering this topic is Jesus asleep in the boat with the guys who are in, you know, in desperate straits and all they can see is, is their own desperation. And Jesus is, um, peaceably asleep in the midst of that. And sometimes, um, I think we have the sense that we have to wake God up, that God is not tending to the business that God needs to be tending to. And it's, you, you made this, uh, you said, you know, if, if this is the boat you're in, we're all in that boat, that boat of thinking that we have to bail ourselves out or we have to get there ourselves. Um, talk about the cooperation um, of the Holy Spirit or our cooperation with the Holy Spirit in all of this. So in my season where I kind of uh, left behind Jen, because Jen was sort of my, uh, my lover of choice, so to speak, um, I was really skeptical that uh, that the Holy Spirit would come, that I would hear the voice of God again. I was really skeptical in a lot of ways that, that God would show up for me. Um, but I'll tell you, over a 90-day season and sitting there and inviting the Holy Spirit to come, to tend to my wounds, to tend to my pain, to be with me, He came. Um, he came, and, and there was a very particular night. Uh, I was sitting, and I was praying for my son who was desperately ill. I had just quit drinking. And as I was praying, God, heal my son, God, heal my son. It was kind of the only thing I knew to pray, right? God help. Um, I very distinctly felt uh, the nudge that, no, I'm not going to heal him, at least not the way you want. 
and I got, uh, you know, pretty angry. And, um, but I said, okay, I hear that. I get that. Um, and I felt again, very distinctly that, that call of, yeah, but at least we're talking now. So that's good. Right. And it was true. It was this moment where I thought, oh, I, I can hear again. My ears are open. You know, as, as E.E. E. Cummings, uh, said, uh, the, uh, the eyes of my eyes awake, the ears of my ears are opened. And that's how I felt for the first time in a long time. And I think that um, in my experience and the experience that I've worked with now, several people struggling with and coming out of addiction, in my experience, if you offer yourself as a sacrifice, if you say, God, I don't know how to do this, this is rough, but come be with me, help me kick this habit, help me kick this coping mechanism, tend to my pain, be with me, he shows up time and time again. The Holy Spirit comes as the comforter time and time again, as the physician time and time again. Um, and, and I'm just to the point in my life now where it doesn't even surprise me anymore when I see uh, someone walk away from their addiction and sort of say, oh, yeah, all of a sudden I could hear, I could hear what sounded like the winds of the Spirit. It was, it's, it's, it's not surprising. It is unastounding anymore. Mm. Seth, I know that, um, you know, your heart is that others would experience, uh, I mean, this genuine liberation and genuine joy and the real pleasure of being um, in right relationship with God and and therefore having a rightly ordered life. The book is The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love that Reorders Life. Um, It is is, um, what I would describe as an invitation to some new soul practices. And so... I uh, just want to in- encourage you guys to check it out. Uh, Seth Haynes, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today on Morning to the Carmen. Thank you so much. It was good to be here. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.